0: difficult to keep the line between the past and the
1: present you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being we may be through with the past but the past is not through with us
2: welcome to the next picture show movie the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release I'm Scott Tobias, here with
3: Genevieve Kosky and Tasha Robinson.
2: Uh, Keith Phipps could not be here this week because he could feel the heat coming from around the corner. Uh, every week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we finally get to talk about Chicago, Illinois, our beloved hometown, where we're recording this podcast right now a wonderful city to visit we've got great restaurants and museums we have like michigan and wrigley field and the art institute you can eat a deep dish pizza or see a show it's a glittering jewel of the midwest and it's high time we get two cinematic valentines to our fair city
0: uh scott what's that i got some bad news for you um in one of these films they blow up the green mill what
2: <laughs> well do they at least go to wrigley sears tower the Von Steuben Day Parade?
0: <laughs> that's that's all from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Well, what are our movies then? Well, over the next two weeks, we're comparing and contrasting two heist movies set in Chicago. In the new thriller Widows, director Steve McQueen's long-awaited follow-up to 12 Years a Slave, the city's notoriously dirty political system figures into a complicated heist in which the widows of some professional thieves unite for a $5 million score. Set heavily on the south side, where the tonier neighborhoods of Hyde Park coexist with some of the poorest communities in the city, Widows uses an alderman race to expose systemic racial and class divides. The Chicago Way also plays a part in Michael Mann's 1981 debut feature, Thief, which stars James Caan as a professional safecracker who can drill through locks more easily than he can through the city's entrenched gangsterism and corruption.
2: Oh well, I guess Chicago is going to live down to its reputation once again. Still, we've inspired great artists like Michael Mann and Steve McQueen, which has given a boost to our local economy. <laughs> This week we'll look at Man's Thief and all the distinct stylistic hallmarks that would find their way into later man works like Heat and Miami Vice. The next week we'll bring in McQueen's Widows and its use of genre to make larger points about our social system. Now let's all take a swig of Malort and get down to it after the break. Ugh.
1: Are you clear? You've been putting down two, three scores a month. You want to put down contract scores all over the country? Working directly for me? I am self-employed. Geisty lice. Just diamonds of cash. Fine. I'll make you a millionaire in four months. I wear $150 slacks. I wear silk shirts. I wear $800 suits. I were a gold watch! I wear a perfect, deep, flawless, three carat ring! I'm a thief!
0: Do you think that I have been waiting for you to come along?
1: You're gonna marry her and have some kids. Yes.
2: Hey, I'm talking to you, hey. I
1: mean, what? What is going on in your life that is so terrific? I'm just I'm just asking you to be with me. we got a problem i want my money
2: we need new partners we're in for 10
1: points i am the last guy you want to mess with you get paid what i say you do what i say you don't know from one day to the next whether you're going to be killed go home or get busted What's wrong with you?
2: James Caan. Thief. There's a funny contrast between the climactic heist sequence in Michael Mann's Thief and Jules Dassin's Rafifi, which is maybe the most celebrated sequence of its kind in film history. In both films, a team of professional thieves descend from the roof after hours to access a fortune in jewels. And in both films, there's an emphasis on natural sound, rather than the music scores often used to goose up the tension in thrillers of its kind. Yet in Rafifi, you can practically hear a pin drop in the theater because the men are trying to work as quietly as possible. And in Thief, they're noisy as hell, tossing furniture around so Frank, a master safecracker, can drill a hole into a particularly thick hunk of metal. There's skill involved, but it's the ultimate smash-and-grab job. Surely the comparison was no coincidence. Thief, and much of Mann's later work, owes a huge debt to Dassin and especially Jean Pierre Melville, whose Le Samurai and Bob Le Flambeur brought a stripped down yet existential quality to films about the criminal kind. Yet the big robbery and thief is also an extension of Frank himself, who isn't the type of guy to carry himself lightly. Frank is a battering ram of a man. In a performance that summons the charisma and brigadocchio of his Sonny Corleone character in The Godfather nine years earlier, James Caan plays Frank as someone whose goals are so clear that they literally fit on a postcard. If it were up to him, he'd smash and grab enough diamonds to buy a modest ranch home for his waitress girlfriend, played by Tuesday Weld, and they could raise a kid together. Any kid. He's not picky about it. Yet the world doesn't operate that way. Doing a criminal job means bringing in potentially unsavory partners. And for that matter, getting a kid through an adoption agency isn't so easy when you've got a criminal record and a hot temper. And so Frank's retirement plan has to include a Chicago mob boss, played by Robert Prosky, who has the resources to set up the biggest score of his career, and the resources, as it happens, to get him a baby, too. Frank will fulfill his end of the bargain. That's who he is. The motives and actions of others are out of his hands. Michael Mann values professionalism above all else. Criminality only bothers him if it's sloppy or dishonorable. That's why he can cast Robert De Niro as a thief and Al Pacino as a police detective in Heat and have them share a coffee together. They understand they're in the opposing roles of cop and robber, but they're united in their skill and commitment to doing the job right. Thief set the standard for the Michael Mann hero, as well as other elements that would carry over to his later films, like the synth-driven ambiance of the Tangerine Dream score, and the careful attention to how characters like Frank go about their work. Is Frank a good person? That's certainly up for debate. But as Omar Little says on The Wire, a man got to have a code, and Frank has one, even if it dooms him in the end. One of the frustrations for a man-hero like Frank is that the criminal underworld naturally tends to attract its share of lowlifes, so conducting yourself honorably isn't always the best play. But Frank does it anyway, and when his honor is not reciprocated, he responds like the battering ram he is. It's not necessarily the smart play, but for a simple brute like him, it's the only play.
1: You don't know from one day to the next whether you're going to be killed, go home, or get busted. Look, I have run out of time. I have lost it all. And so I can't I can't work fast enough to catch up, and I can't run fast enough to catch up, and the only thing that catches me up is doing my magic act, but it ends, you know? It will end, when I got this right there. It ends, it's over. So I'm just asking you to be with me. I can't, I can't. (laughs) I don't get him wow so we adopt i I'm not ready see and and I have my life so I I can't what I mean what what is going on in your life that is so terrific mine's been a mess <laughs> i was just I was just thinking you know that Maybe between the two of us. That we could make something something happen, something special, something really nice. You
2: know? Okay, so I'm extremely curious what you all thought of this film. I mean obviously I'm pretty well steeped in the work of of Michael Mann, <laughs> but I believe this is both Tasha and Genevieve, this is your first encounter with this film, and so Basically, what do you think of it?
3: I liked it. I, I felt like a lot of pressure to love it because I know how you feel about, about man, <laughs> Scott. But yeah. I but I, I, I did enjoy it. I was never not enjoying watching it. It's a super stylish film. It moves well. I loved seeing like this vision of Chicago, which predates my time in the city, predates me, you know, but it's a time in the city that I've seen depicted in other films, but not this way. Mm-hmm. So I that was really enjoyable to see. But I think like it just it didn't stick to the ribs in, in the way I was hoping. It would, and I think a lot of that comes down to the Frank character. And listening to your keynote, like, kind of underlined why I didn't really connect to him, but also sort of underlined that, like, maybe that's on purpose. Um, he he just like feels like a little bit of a hollow center at this film. Just like his his motivations just feel so basic and blunt, and and there's like no internal tension in him. Like, I don't get the sense that he enjoys being a thiever. He's like very drawn to crime. You know, it's very kind of like like you said, like a blunt and approach to it mm-hmm. and I, I think also watching this after widows where the motivations of individual characters are all super knotty and intertwined yeah. this just felt like a very pro forma uh, approach that it worked it worked to make the movie go yeah. but i think it kind of kept me from connecting to the frank character finding him super interesting in a way that might have made the film you know stick a little more Tasha, I wound up in a
0: similar place, although I think Frank ends up being one of the most interesting elements of the film. It's just that he's he's different. He may not be complicated, but his straightforwardness Mm -hmm. kind of puts him in a place uh, that is familiar from other really interesting films like Point Blank comes to mind about somebody who's just a very sharpened. I want to say a sharpened bullet which is a, a, how, how can you mix a metaphor in two words
3: <laughs> I like Scott's blunt instrument ram he's a
0: sharpened battering ram he's got mm. he's got the pointy bit and he just shoves it in and, yeah. and drives forward and I think the specificity of what he wants ends up being really interesting to me for me where the film kind of falls apart is in looking back on it, it brings across tension really well, I think. Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time during this film feeling a little breathless about what might happen next, like how is this heist going to proceed? How is this fight going to proceed? Who's going to survive uh, this? What's going to happen in this, like, awful date between uh, (laughs) Tuesday Weld and James (laughs) Conn? All of these different things. And then by the time we got to the end, the end felt really pro forma for me. The end, to me, felt like a lot of settling scores with the mob uh, kind of stories that I've seen over the years, some of which might have been entirely an emulation of this. Um, but for the complexity of the film to ultimately come down to a man walking into a house and shooting a bunch of people, yeah. that was a little disappointing for me.
2: Right. but I mean, we can talk about the, the ending for, for sure in his the choices that bring him there, which to me is are quite interesting and revealing of of character. But broadly speaking, I think there is a strong interest on his part, particularly in this movie, but even, even in Heat, which is, you know, if you consider, it is to use a Chicago metaphor, that is a, a deep-dish Michael Mann film. He, <laughs> he is a three-hour epic, but he likes to play with archetypes very boldly drawn archetypes Mm -hmm. and you know i think about james con in this movie you know you mentioned point blank is a really good example lee Marmot in that film that particular type of hero someone who is on the wrong side of the law but Goes about his business in a, in a, as honorable a fashion as a straight shooter as you can be in that business. I mean, I think that is a, a pretty deliberate choice uh, for him to use that. I mean, I, was, you know, I mentioned uh, um, Melville, who's, who again, as somebody who, who liked to take American noirs and do his own kind of minimalist existentialist twist on them. Uh Jules Dassin actually had a film called Brute Force, uh that you could have you could have called Thief Brute Force as well, and that would have applied. I mean, I think that there's a there's a real deliberate nature into the way this character has been conceived as simply as possible.
3: Yeah. I that's what I was saying, like it uh listening to your keynote like made me feel like it was purposeful. And so like I d I can't quite call it a flaw, but I think like that is maybe just like kind of a personal taste thing is yep. I, I straight archetype characters tend not to interest me as much as more complicated characters. But I do tend to agree with you though that Michael
0: Mann is just is a filmmaker who likes bold choices mm-hmm. and a lot of the stuff that really stands out for me about this movie is some of the really bold choices. Mm-hmm. I love the Tangerine during
2: score. Yes. It's awesome. <laughs> it's just I mean, first,
0: it's so different. It's and also so first, memorable. The,
2: this is his first film. The first 30 seconds of the film you know who directed <laughs> it. Like who can, I mean, who can do that? Like. Just immediately it, establish themselves. It's, it's always like,
3: like just on the verge of too much. Like, there were a couple times, like, when it's just like, you know, not quite overpowering a scene, you know, but I'm like, is this too much? I think it no no nope. it's just right it's just right <laughs> it's very insinuating and it's yeah.
0: very it's very very bold it's not a score that you're going to miss uh in the background somewhere it's not a score that's uh trying to like sort of subtly influence you without being
3: overt like it's an in your face stylistic choice and I I kind of love it well and it also like features that somewhat extended sequence in the bar of uh Mighty Joe Young's turning point being mm-hmm. being played like talk about your Blunt, uh, you know, uh, very very upfront uh, musical metaphors. I, I think that's the only like actual song with lyrics that that appears in the film, but it is no less sort of in your face. That the Tangerine Dream and stuff. it is
0: it's a nice important little you know Chicago moment. Mm-hmm. There's, there's so much Chicago in this yeah. film, not just in terms of uh, driving around in it and being in the environments of it, but like the flavor of it. You oh, yeah. you get the accents, you get uh, the blue scene, you get all of these hangout scenes in the Green Mill, you get. Uh, the The car dealerships on Western yeah, Avenue which are still there. It used, yeah. to, it used to be made up entirely of car dealerships, and still a huge. Strip you get Pop of car belly, Did
2: you notice that? Yeah,
3: that like that, that like that may have been the first Pop Belly. I had to be, yeah, it. Yeah, because I don't I was... think it was a chain at that point. But,
2: <laughs> that, yeah. that completely blew my mind. I had no idea Pop belly existed. In <laughs> that, that's
3: hilarious. That like that was like the first thing I noticed, and that scene, I'm like Pop Belly. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got you, can, you, know, you know, driving under the L stations. and uh, oh, yeah, yeah. you, know,
2: you got to have that. you got to have the lower Wacker Drive. You've got to have the, the elevated owl. track. Yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of standard stuff. But he does show you some sub stuff that isn't standard, you know, and is in the neighborhood a little bit for, yeah. for us. That was certainly a pleasure, just the surface of that. I mean, there's also plenty of substance to his portrait of Chicago as well. Uh, but I kind of <laughs> wanted to get up
0: to and including incredibly abusive cops. Oh, yeah.
2: my God. But that, to get kind of continue a little bit more with frank is that what i was kind of asking myself watching it again this time was just like what does he want all this stuff in the postcard this vision that he has of a perfect life of having this woman and a kid any kid uh, (laughs) of living in this house is it you know of having taken care of this mentor of his played by willie nelson who gets
3: um, third billing despite being in two scenes. I, <laughs> I was like, "Good
2: for you: In one of the scenes, he says nothing because he's done. Yeah. Uh, but he wants these things, but I wonder, but he's also f- strikes me as a very restless mm-hmm. spirit, Not so, you know or maybe or maybe what did you think? I mean is he somebody, somebody who's capable of turning it off? Did you, did you get the sense like, if he pulls off this one last job and he gets the score that he was promised, is he the type of person who can just shut it down?
0: I don't believe so for a minute. I think one of the interesting things about his his dream, his postcard, his literally postcard picture life here, is he believes on some level that like once he has this list of bullet pointed things that he's represented in, in dream board form, mm-hmm. long before vision boards were a thing, he thinks that he'll be able to turn it off and he'll be happy. And we we kind of get that one scene of him sitting in the glider with Tuesday Weld like holding her in his arms and he seems at peace. I just don't get any sort of feeling that that's a long-term thing. I think it's something that he's invented for himself. And I think that that disastrous date thing with her, where she does end up deciding to go ahead and go with him. Mm -hmm. Uh, But his idea of romance is showing up two hours late to a date, like bodily forcing the woman that he showed up for into a car and like yelling at her like let's get this romance on the road yeah I don't think that he's cut out for oh, and and when he when he wants to adopt a kid it's like yelling <laughs> at uh, an adoption worker yeah. about how he's willing to take a black chink kid I mean yeah. he has a vision of things he wants to acquire yeah but his way of acquiring them he's so much subtler when he's stealing jewels than when
2: he's trying <laughs> he's to not and he's, he didn't subtle when he's seeing the yeah. either. He's got a drill, basically. He's, he's <laughs> got
0: like a
3: 10-foot flamethrower. But, <laughs> but he has
0: so much more patience with the 10-foot flamethrower or with the giant drill press in the opening scene yeah. than he has with anybody who's standing in the way of like, basically, He it's like he's got a shopping cart. And mm-hmm. he's like, pick up woman, put in shopping cart. Pick up baby, put in shopping yeah. cart. And <laughs> anything that interferes with that is just infuriating
3: yeah i definitely agree with that in terms of his uh you know picture postcard life and it feeling like like you know he says he was what 20 when he goes when he went to prison and it was like in his early 30s when he came out like he definitely he was in prison during the period in your life where you know culturally you're expected to acquire all those things mm. you know a significant other a children a house you know like that's supposed to have happened for him by the time he got out of prison and i think maybe he was sort of projecting the loss of being in prison onto this like very basic to do list mm. um i don't necessarily agree with uh, your certainty tasha that he can't turn it off and that he couldn't just walk away from this life of crime and it kind of goes back to what i was saying at the beginning is like i never get the sense that he's good. At, I mean, he is good at what he does, but it doesn't feel like a like a passion, you know. Like it, I feel like in a lot of heist movies, you get the you get this like ultimate pro character, and even if they may want to walk away, there's something that want that keeps them in some sort of love of the game, some yeah. sort of, like I'm I'm good at it, you know, like some sort of pride in what they do, and I just never got that from Frank. That's what I kind of meant about there being no internal tension in him. It's like this is just a a means to an end for him.
0: You know what I think is a weirdly anomalous moment in the film but is is critical (laughs) is when the cops are beating the crap out of him. Um, he says to one of them, why don't you work for a living? Like, you could do scores, too. You have hmm. all the information. It doesn't feel like he's accusing them because they're beating on him. He's accusing them because they're basically the same as criminals, right. but he doesn't consider their version of crime to be work.
2: Well, th- th- the th- version th-
0: that he does is a legitimate employment. And it's like he's basically saying, you know, I, I go to the office from 9 to 5 every day that doesn't mean i love it but that's what my work is it's like is. a trade but not a calling so,
2: well no yeah. but no, what, i think what he's saying to them is that they're scoundrels that because the, he the, the, the one thing that frank is is he's completely honest about what he is a thief mm-hmm. that is what he does and he does it and he makes it he makes this deal for this much of a score and the and the and the person fencing the jewels gets this much and his team gets this much and he's going to pull off that job and he's going to you know but but when you're a cop and you want a piece of the score and that's what you're in there for i mean that is not doing a job mm-hmm. properly I mean I think that's kind of honestly and that's, and that's so much that's so much a, a Michael Mann theme to just to completely close the book on the whole would he stop cold or not yeah. I'm, I'm kind of convinced that he could stop cold almost based again on, on the man character as it's gone through different iterations I mean I, because I think you have to have a certain amount of discipline um, you know he appreciates discipline which Frank does have at least certainly in his job uh, and you think about the, the discipline that, say, De Niro's character has in Heat, and I think I think in both cases it's like they can cut it off if necessary. You know, the whole line about you know being able to drop everything in fifteen minutes when you hit, feel the heat coming around the corner and mm-hmm. heat like it, 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 they can drop it. And the other thing, the other thing is that that postcard comes back in Collateral. Do you remember Collateral mm-hmm. with Jamie Fox's mm-hmm. character has a the cab driver has a postcard of this tropical place or something that he yeah. he has an ambition to have his own line of fleet of of cabs or limos and that is going to be his ticket to this other life and so i think there is a legitimate pursuit of a goal on both of their parts and maybe just a hint in thief like when they go off after the big job and go to the beach and, and play that maybe he could do it maybe this is maybe this is what he's living for i don't know so so i'm i, I waver i think he can kind of go either way on that question
3: I mean it is A way of... to not be a tiebreaker Scott It <laughs> is know. sort of a, a I'm going to say
2: leaning, I'm leaning towards Yes he can He can give up the life
0: The movie leans In a, an ambiguous direction Ultimately I mean in the end I believe that We are meant to Expect that he does not Go and And find Tuesday Well Like he's He has told her It's over It's done yeah. Yeah. And like he Destroys his life And walks off Into the mist I don't think That's meant to be Like him go- Like going off To put the pieces Of his life Back together He is literally burned down his life yeah. and, and crumpled up the the postcard and crumpled up the postcard no, which is yeah. very symbolic of like letting go of this dream but like what he's off to do next you don't know like is he just going to go back into the profession? Is he is he done? Like, is he going to go kill himself? I mean, what do you do after destroying everything you worked for? It's an ambiguous thing. Yeah. And I feel like the movie is similarly meant to be kind of ambiguous about if this life had let him move ahead in something approximating an honest direction. Uh, like where he would have gone. But it's just endemic to the profession he's in that it's not going to let him do that. So it never really mattered what, what his choices were because he was never going to have the choice to make.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the ending is almost like Taxi Driver without the denouement in a way. <laughs> like mm-hmm. there's like in, without the ironic, without, the, without really knowing what happens next. Because I think the intention going in is like, I'm going to just kill everybody. <laughs> like, like this is just a massive life-ruining betrayal. I'm ref- I refuse on principle to accept the terms that, uh, the terms that I've been offered and this is my my response, being the, being the battering ram of a man I am, is to lay waste to this dream that I had the, and also lay waste to these people who have completely betrayed my uh, trust. So I think that's kind of powerful, though it becomes ambiguous, the fact that he survives that onslaught, like, well, you know, the question of what happened. Yeah, like, like the, the fact
3: that he put on a bulletproof vest to do that in the first place, like like that.
2: Hmm. begs a question i don't even, even remember that
3: yeah yeah i mean he takes off like he like tears off his shirt and you like see him like touching the the bulletproof vest uh, okay. you, you know i mean he got shot more or less in the chest and walked away so like it indicates some you know measure of self preservation but why you know yeah. like, like like what 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 is he preserving himself for i mean What's the plan?
0: it's i don't need, i don't think that that necessarily indicates planning a future so much as like he knew he had to get through this business Mm -hmm. and in the same way like he when we see the level of preparation that goes into his his jobs this is another job like of course he's gonna have like scoped out the house and he's gonna know the exits he's gonna know where the men are because when he comes out of the house he's prepared uh, to be charged by a bunch of men with guns. Yeah I guess
3: in that context it's just he wanted to be able to survive long enough to get the job done. Yeah he needed to in order to finish them all off
0: he needed to be able to take a few bullets because it was probably inevitable he was going to take a few bullets.
2: Trivia question for you. Uh, who is the uh, actor in the non-speaking role who shoots... Uh... Dennis, Farina? Dennis Farina? Yeah, that's right. Isn't trivia. That's, that awesome? that's not trivia. I was that's like, cool, it's the, the minute like,
3: This very first you scene, I'm like, hey, it's Dennis Farina. I know. This is
2: before Dennis Farina was Dennis Farina. He was just, uh, he was just some guy oh, he, from Chicago. He, was, here, here, he, he was... was
0: still Dennis Farina. That hair, man. He's so Dennis Farina.
3: I will give you some trivia. Uh, who is the mechanic? I believe he's the one who briefly speaks. Uh... Chicago person but probably not Del Close. Oh, really? Yep. Uh, The improv guy. Yep. Founder, uh, more or less came up with a long form improv uh, here in Chicago at the IO theater, I believe. Um, oh, so sad. big big name in uh chicago improv and all all improv yeah, the del close theater proper so uh, the, yeah. which
2: which brings it in me to this question uh, how does the city of chicago figure into to the action how is it, what do you th- what do you think of this as a chicago movie
3: i mean it works really well as a noir setting you know especially in those sort of opening scenes with the the rainy streets and the the high contrast you mm-hmm. know lighting like it i mean it looks great <laughs> you know it, but it's recognizably chicago but again to go back to this idea it is also So kind of archetypal, you know, and um, it just it plays that part the city plays that part really well
0: I was a little flippant about uh, police brutality but Chicago of this era did have a, a humongous reputation for police brutality this mm-hmm. was the John Burge era this was the era when uh, cops were pretty routinely known to torture sub- suspects into confessions mm-hmm. and I really believe that the way they handle uh, the police in this film is is meant to be like directly tied into just Chicago's reputation mm-hmm. at this time
2: well I mean and also just this collaboration between between the cops and gangsters mm-hmm. it's kind of remarkable to see this film where you know he makes this deal with the Robert Prosky character and he's being surveilled by the police at this point and you you're thinking he's just fallen into this larger scheme that they're that they've got they're going to rope in him and the and Prosky and the, his whole operation that's really not what's going on at all like they're they're there to protect prosky and, and to to get the, the you know the, the surveillance is about getting their piece of the action i mean that's a whole nother story really i mean to, to have that kind that level of corruption is so great and it reinforces these two elements the gangsterism and the and the and the police corruption they just end up reinforcing and strengthening each other and crushing uh crushing the little guy which in this case is a you know criminal <laughs> but still um it's it's interesting to see that work that way it's a very it feels true to me
3: i mean the little guy is jesse tuesday well i mean she's the one who who gets ultimately crushed right more than
2: yeah yeah i mean that in that her hope for life, life life is is spoiled i, I mean i guess i don't it, it,
0: know i don't know how ultimately crushed she is uh,
2: she gets the kid I we guess. can
0: i mean we can discuss that separately like i don't want to i don't want to steamroller over the chicago discussion i want to loop back to jesse because i think I there's do, a lot I do to, too. to explore I, in her but uh, there's also just uh, the, this, this particular feeling of, of mobbed-upness, like this particular view of uh, what they used to call the Chicago outfit, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the kind of mob that wasn't, uh, you know, so much a cinematic idea of the mob, the mafia is uh, based around large Italian families. Mm-hmm. And I think Chicago, the Chicago crime syndicates tend to be more based around the Al Capone ideal. You've got a lot of pudgy white men mm-hmm. uh, Uh, possibly surrounded by uh, people of color, but it's much less based in uh, like, street gangs running drugs than it might be in L.A. It's much less based in crime families than it might be in New York. Uh, it's based around Midwesterners. So you've got a bunch of pudgy white men with families who live in the suburbs um, and are quietly running crime from their basements. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just, I think that that's a, a fairly uniquely Chicago way of looking at organized crime.
3: I love Robert Prosky's performance. Oh, as, as okay. and It it does kind of uh, fit into what, what you're talking about, because, like, he... You know he's threatening, but he never really comes across as overtly threatening. You know, like until he, he does. Yeah, until he, it's a boy. Is
0: it a scene when he does? Oh wow, yeah, what yeah, a
3: great what Right, a great yeah, moment. but he doesn't like. You know, mu- he he's almost like sort of an uncle you know like a shady mm-hmm. uncle figure you know um and it fits into this idea of sort of crime as collaboration with the with the city you know it's not he's not like an enemy of the of the state or the city whatever you want to call it he's he's part of it he's part of the family and he's the the shady uncle of the chicago family you know
2: yeah it's perfect casting really because he does have that right of av- a uncle mm-hmm. thing uh, going and 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 he has the calm of someone who knows he's he has all that power i mean mm-hmm. he doesn't have have to he doesn't have to um flex flex at all and he and he also realizes that he's got one over on frank from the beginning i mean he can he can get to that point where he betrays him and and expect frank to fall in line because the, the cost of not falling in line is pretty steep uh you know as he's we,
0: so shady though like it's just uh, your crime films uh, crime films are so often about hubris and overreaching, you know, t- doing that one last job that you shouldn't do and uh trusting that one person that you shouldn't trust and getting sloppy and spending the dough or talking about the 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 crime in public when you shouldn't. And in this case the hubris is all is all Leo's. Like Leo could have had a really good thing going and he chooses to screw it up because he just, he feels he has so much power, like nobody should question him. Nobody should question the fact that he basically hired uh, an uber professional for a job and then just completely stiffed him at the end. <laughs> he, he stiffs him on the payout. He treats him with contempt. And then he's like, and you should be happy for me because I took all your money to invest into my businesses. And there's totally going to be, be a payoff. Like, never mind that you said we weren't going to deal it that way. Uh, you should smile and take what you get for the work that you did and the whole thing could be avoided if he dealt straight with Frank they would be rolling in millions of dollars and instead just everything ends up broken and burning I think
2: he's comfortable though just anticipating that Frank is going to fall in line like everybody else I oh mean, sure I, but, I mean, th- this that's what hubris this is, like, is. <laughs> but, this, but I don't think it's hubris I think it's cold calculation uh, because that's what's, gonna, that's what's supposed to happen I think about this last season of, of, of The Deuce was the same way uh, with the with, uh, main character on that it's like he would like to get out <laughs> he's got enough resources to do so he, he wants to get out of certain aspects of the busy- business which he f- finds unsavory but it's like nope you know, we're not—we're just not going to let you do that, and you're going to have to live with that, and what all of this, all of the moral baggage that comes along with it. There's nothing that can be helped because you do a great job, and we want you there, and we're gangsters, and <laughs> we can say that. Um, and and so, I mean, I think there's kind of a—I think he's just pr- certainly taken by surprise uh, that Frank, um, you know, is able to do what he does. You know, I mean, because even if Frank—if Frank says no. They have him out gunned and outmanned. I mean, was it what kind of power does he have? I mean, it's it's extraordinary that he's able to pull off what he does, but I think on the case of in Leo's case it's just You know, I think he he just anticipates either Frank is going to fall in line because because uh, it would be fatal for him not to or they just kill him.
0: Yeah, but that doesn't pan out. And that's that's what bothers me. I feel like I need maybe like more despite the fact that I said, you know, clearly Frank prepares for his uh, final shootout like he's got the vest, he's got the plans. I would have liked to have seen more of that because in the end what he does is he walks into the house of the guy who has all of the the guns and a fair bit of cunning given that he sees uh, what's going on and and gets out Mm -hmm. uh, and just shoots everybody. And there's not really a lot presented – to show like how he gets away with that apart from being a protagonist and, and being clever and possibly Leo just being too arrogant to see it coming. But I mean, in the end we're told that he's this consummate professional, that he's Mr. Wizard. Uh, And then in the end he just, he gets his way through like very blunt. I walk in and shoot some people.
2: Yeah. But I also think he's, you know, there's a, I mean, there's preparation, but there's a certain recklessness and like a nihilism to that. Oh, gesture. that's true. Ni- I mean,
3: nihilism, I think, is is a word that kept popping into my head with his whole thing. You know? it yeah. Throughout, the, I mean, he has that little, um, you know speech about nothing you know with the, with the Tuesday well character you know That's like really it, point. yeah and it, it all kind of comes back to that feeling I had of this of being just sort of this empty hole at the center of, of this movie of like what what is driving him you know and you know it, it feels like everything we see or we're told is driving him is just one level of above center you know there's not like a core drive to him
2: i guess but i mean i think what keeps uh, him from being uh, what makes him human i think is james con though i think con Ca- mm. is just is such a um explosive mm. actor i mean someone who is feeling every moment in a very intense way is, has a very strong reactions to things you know if sonny corleone were, were less of a screw-up then he would be frank you know i mean they, they both run hot that's just their way and uh, um you know i think con pulls that off you know just he's just that's his one that's his one you know he can i've seen him do some pretty nuanced performances he does he there's a movie he did a couple of, called the rain people where he's just gives he a very beautiful quiet performance but like you know this is him this is this is what you expect from james khan and i think there's kind of you know that there's a lot of humanity to that that i think enriches a character that is you know a on paper and in concept uh, pretty simple
0: i think what makes him human is okla willie nelson's character Mm. and i think that maybe the real turning point in the film is his death even though that is it's such a small a weirdly small role and such a small scene the scene where the two of them are talking together in the prison has more of a sense of of passion and affection Mm. than anything that ever happens between frank and jesse and it's actually kind of weird (laughs) the way that that scene that conversation is shot where they have their heads really really close together um and they're both looking at each other with the love light in their eyes i like as soon as they started talking i I thought oh these guys used to be lovers because there's a there's a weirdly romantic element to just the way they look and talk to each other and there's a warmth to both of them and I, I feel like probably what we're supposed to get is just you know Willie Nelson is doing his Willie Nelson thing, like he's just he's a warm and compelling guy, and I think James Con is maybe responding to that. But the way they talk, like I know world, I know they're old friends. I know that uh, he's his mentor. I know that he he cares about him a lot. But there's a level of emotion there that I never saw between Frank and Jesse, and when. Frank tells Okla you know here's here's my plan like I'm currently dating this girl we're going to get a baby like the whole exchange between them just really sounds like I'm I'm doing the thing that you're supposed to do and it's going to work out and Willie Nelson's like yeah that's cool. I kept wondering, especially given the the backstory of just, like, the horrors of jail, if the two of them were, like, more than friends in jail and that they forged an emotional relationship. I am not sure that Michael Mann would support that reading. Mm-hmm. It's entirely yeah. in the acting for me. But I do think that they're meant to have a connection that is fundamentally important to his life. Mm-hmm. And when Okla dies, something changes.
2: I think that's a good point. I I wouldn't go quite so far as to say there's any kind of like intimacy beyond this long relationship they've had, this mentorship, this closeness, and you can compare that to his relationship with Jesse, which is on the fly. It's well, it's on the fly too, yeah. right? It's like okay, this is. This this is good. This is like this person. This is the person she's going to take me to whatever. He's Mm going to help me achieve this goal that I have. It's not it's not like he doesn't have feelings for her, but it's there's a definite contrast in terms of the depth of those feelings between how he feels about Oakland, and how he feels about Jesse. Right.
3: Yeah. I think it's interesting how Frank and Jesse's relationship is is introduced. You know, when he talks to her for the first time in the movie, it's not the first time he's spoken to her. You know, like there's an the implication that they've they they know each other. He presumably sees her frequently. You know, um, we don't know if it's their first date or, you know, third or fifth or whatever. You know, like they have some sort of established relationship, but we are not given any clues really of, uh, precisely how far along that relationship is so when we get to that scene between the two of them uh, that bad date scene which I actually really like and like when it was over I was like I should have hated that why didn't I hate that scene oh yeah let's talk about that yeah um, I think it, I think the answer is Tuesday Weld I think she's uh, fabulous in that scene but um, <laughs> and, and, and
2: I also think it's just spectacularly beautiful like this like where he sets it and the way it looks it's just so it's such a gorgeous scene but go ahead
3: to reach that scene without like fur Knowledge of of what led up to it without being told explicitly. I don't know how I feel about it. Still, I mean, I only watched this this movie, you know, a handful of hours ago, so I'm still kind of like putting it together in in my mind. But uh, I think it's interesting the way the relationship progresses in this movie. I
0: I think that that progression condensed into this scene is why I end up loving the scene because mm-hmm. uh, for me, it's not it's not necessarily the acting, although the acting is good. It's not necessarily the setting. It's the expectations I had based on how it started to build and where it went instead. Uh, because the, the where he shows up and he's two hours late and she's like, you know, we're done. Mm-hmm. I don't – there's no reason for me to put up with this. You don't respect me. And he physically throws her into a car and she gets out and other people try to help her. And he grabs her and throws her back in and takes her somewhere and like f- forces coffee on her and tells her what to think. All of that reminded me so much of Robert Redford and Faye Dunaway in Three Days of the Condor mm-hmm. and how he basically assaults and kidnaps her and takes her hostage and so she falls for him. And just that whole dynamic, we did a whole list of them at uh, for an inventory at the A.V. Club of – people women falling for men who kidnap and assault them and it's a really gross uh trope so here as soon as he throws her into the car i was like oh boy here we go and uh, like within two scenes she's going to be falling for him because he's so manly and dreamy and instead she keeps standing up for herself Mm -hmm. she she does not budge on like, I am not interested in dealing with this. And it tells you so much about his character, how he escalates, how he gets so frustrated, because she won't get with the program. What are you doing in your life that's better than living up to this weird fantasy that I have? Like, just do what you're told. And she just keeps pushing back on it. And when she does give in, it's not out of a feeling of romantic attraction to him mm-hmm. it's because he basically offers her something that she's never had and she wants and when the two of them exchange horror
3: stories those horror stories are really <laughs> horrible yeah yeah I like mean, the, like the little glimpse we get of her background it's like oh i can see why you might like be drawn to a somewhat transactional uh, stable or supposedly stable safe relationship
0: which is possibly an illusion like yeah. he he basically ends up saying like look I we don't know each other, but I want to make this picture happen. Do you want to be in this picture? And she's like, "That picture looks pretty good to me. Not you. Looks except pretty for good all the me. dead people." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, what's what's with what the dead people over here? Oh, there's actually an interesting story behind that. So
3: the answer is nihilism. It's, they <laughs> <it>. <laughs> the na-
0: what the nature of that exchange ends up being is a so far what I was expect from what I was expecting it to be, and b so unique like this Mm. is just i i think of maybe a movie like mad dog and glory Mm. uh where a woman basically agrees to be in a relationship with somebody she does not care about in the slightest for transactional reasons and I, I, i don't know it's just there there's a small enough number of those kinds of things she i don't think she ever really gives up her identity i don't think she ever really gives up like what she where she came from, or what she wants, and that's why, in the end, when he sends her away, she's pretty clearly devastated that it's over, but I don't think she's in any way destroyed because I think she was always expecting it that's to happen fair.
2: yeah that's a, that's interesting um i mean one one note I would make on top of all that, which is. Just... I'm not. You, know, you, you all have impacted very well, and I'm not. So I'm not stepping on any of it. Is that? Is that? I, I please do...
3: mansplain the female character to us.
2: M a n n. I'm I, giving that Bravo. a golf clap. I'm gonna I'm gonna say, what I will say that w- what what's inter- it's interesting that the length of a scene like that, the amount of time that that man is willing to devote, which is ostensibly a a a tight, whatever, two fisted. You know, uh, heist movie, uh, and give give over send you on this journey with these characters for for that length of time. That's very unusual, and then then he follows that up with other things that are unusual to see in a movie like this. Which is which are just planning, (laughs) which is just like how do we do this job, and what do we need, and who do we talk to? Um, What's different about it than other jobs? You know, just it's interesting what gets man 's attention because when he when something gets his attention he gives it he g- it gets his full attention and he really works it as hard as he can and 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 uh and so it, you end up with some unusual touches like like a how long would that scene be fifteen twenty minutes or something like that that 's a very long scene the
3: one between the two of them between the two yeah. of them
2: i mean and that's that is n- nothing I think you would anticipate in a movie like this so uh you know kudos to you. Michael Mann making your first movie. But uh, we'll have uh, more to say about uh, Michael Mann and Thief next week when we compare it to Widows. But first, a break and some feedback. Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. Uh, First, we have to start, though, with a a terrible, terrible, terrible mistake that Tasha made.
0: (laughs) Really? Was it a terrible mistake that I made? I'm going to throw it all on Keith and Absentia.
2: I was was there for it. You know, I was... Well, I guess it's probably my mistake for not even... (laughs) It was no. my mistake for not being there to yeah. correct you all. Okay. Uh,
0: it basically, it's everybody's mistake. <laughs> well, but what, what, but what, mine. what was
2: this terrible error, Tasha, that you made? Uh,
0: well, recently, when we were discussing The Other Side of the Wind uh, on Netflix for our pairing of Other Side of the Wind with Shirkers, uh, I was rambling on about how my deep seated love of John Huston's voice and how he will always be Gandalf the Wizard to me. Uh, and uh, I believe Keith said, uh, you know, in the Bakshi movies. And I said, yeah, because uh, I have a terrible knee jerk uh, habit of <laughs> responding these in the affirmative when uh somebody somebody seems to know more than i do about uh a piece of of filmic trivia to be fair keith is often that person keith is like <laughs> really I, I i'm gonna back up and say i have a knee-jerk uh habit of responding to him positively because he is so much more on the ball on that you usually I have to look it up Tasha, uh, do you
2: know that T- dennis farina is in thief what <laughs>
0: Next, year are telling me that Del Close is in Thief. I, I this this seems this seems inky. I'm going to go look this up. Uh, he is in John Houston was in fact Gandalf in the Ra- Rankin Bass uh, Lord of the Rings the the Hobbit uh, movie, mm. um, and I, I apparently quoted him accurately but uh, placed him in the wrong movie. So a little uh, unfortunate about that. But uh, strangely, we did not get a uh, a huge wave of emails uh, telling me that I'm an idiot. So I would like to thank everybody who did not well actually me on uh john houston's casting and uh i would like to invite you all to join me on a grand adventure uh
2: okay well thank you for that correction issued (laughs) yeah correct but it's 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 uh, much harder to issue corrections on podcasts than in uh (laughs) but it's more entertaining um so so we thought we were through with the star is born But A Star is Born wasn't through with us. It just
3: wanted to look at us one more time. (laughs) It
2: did. Genevieve, what's the latest?
3: Ben in Houston wrote a very long email about the suicide that ends the films. We can't read it in full, but here's an excerpt. Ben writes... I wanted to write in to talk about a subject in both *Stars Born* movies, which you mentioned that you didn't have time to get to, which is the difference between how the suicide is treated in both films. Y'all captured well my problems with the way that Jackson Maine is so much more overbearing and self-serving than Norman Maine in the other film. But one of my chief complaints is that the suicide at the end of the most recent film is completely 100% unambiguous. I watched all three previous *Stars Born films before I saw the new one, and in all three, the suicide of the older male is fairly ambiguous. Now, maybe with the first two, this was due to the morality clauses and Hays Code era reasons, but what I loved so much about it was that the man saw that his very existence was a burden on the woman and her attempts at happiness and career achievement. As such, it's not so much of an idea of, if I kill myself, she'll move on, as it's more, if I go away, she'll move on. It would be better if one day I just wasn't here anymore. By making the suicide unambiguous, it makes it more pointedly a statement of you made me do this, particularly since Jackson does it while Allie is having a big concert where he is supposed to be there. It makes it once again entirely about him, where in the other films, the sacrifice of the man is to say, I'm going to die, but in a way that you could potentially move on. Of course, the tragedy is that at least in the first two films, the final line implies that she will always carry that tragedy with her, and that he really perhaps did her more of a disservice than he realizes. In this version, it is almost purposefully saying, I'm going to kill myself because you can't possibly live without me, even though the intention is supposed to be, I want you to live without me. So that's Letter, but Ben also gave us his definitive ranking of all four versions of A Star is Born, and it is starting at the top, 1954, 1937, 2018, 1976. Okay. A, coincidentally that's also the combination to the
0: the lock that uh on the safe that Frank is breaking into at the <laughs> beginning of the film. So if he had realized that, he could have just saved himself a whole lot of drilling.
2: <laughs> I so suppose. I think this I think this is a good letter though. I would say that um unambiguous. I think it's clear that suicide is being com- committed. Uh but I do but the point that he makes about going away not being anymore it's it's definitely a much different type of suicide a much Mm -hmm. different type of death uh and i guess maybe he's thinking it's ambiguous in terms of how it might be interpreted by no he's saying
0: i think he's he's saying it's ambiguous in terms of uh the the drownings could just theoretically not be deliberate
2: yeah but i mean the people who would like outsiders could potentially see that as you think you think that even she would see that as poss- possible. Oh, I
0: think I think even the audience could see it as uh, possibly not suicide. Oh, okay. Like you'd have to stretch for it, but I think it's in hmm. in a haze code kind of way. But yeah, I think it's also meant to be, you know, for her in all cases if she's if it's left ambiguous for her, she doesn't necessarily have to contend with he did it because of me.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it's also left ambiguous for the the rest of the world within the film. You know, like like Norman Maine died in a swimming accident. is different from Jackson Maine was found hanged to death. In his garage. Yeah, yeah. Like that's something that can't be spun, you know, mm-hmm. by, the, uh, by the shady studio PR guy. So Allie will always have the shadow of her husband definitively killing himself whereas esther lost her husband and under tragic circumstances but it maybe wasn't suicide
0: i think i feel like bradley cooper's character in stars born is is just in enough pain that he's not really thinking about these nuances like i i really don't think that The either the film sells the idea of he wants her to be tortured forever or that he's trying to make it all about himself by doing it during a concert. I I think he's a, a tortured soul. I think he's an addict, as they all are, and he's had a troubled past and a troubled family life. And I think that when he does it, he's not thinking about destroying her future. He's thinking about Trying not to sabotage her future. I, I think that that's all there is to it. There's a lot more in this letter specifically about the imagery used and yeah. how it's used. And a lot of that I specifically didn't agree with, uh, which I think kind of pushes me a little bit against this interpretation. Mm. I think he's right in saying it's unambiguous here and that just does change the, the math a little bit. Um, I just disagree
2: about what it implies as a result. You got you to take take our word for it. Ben really really <laughs> drops the ball. In the <laughs> part of the well, letter that we we'll did, put the we'll put we the letter pray.
0: on Facebook. It but, is it's long and it like so many things. Suicide is just one of those things that, depending on your life experience, you're probably going to have very personal reactions mm-hmm. to. I and you know death in general the same way, but I think suicide even more so. You're going to have very personal associations. And they're going to affect how you see how it's portrayed. And so, you know, he may be interpreting based on his experiences. I know I am on mine. I think everybody's going to see it a little different way. I wouldn't be surprised if Bradley Cooper was seeing it a specifically different way. But for me, the language of the film does not say this is about him selfishly trying to hurt her.
2: But there is definitely a difference between just being sort of washed, carried out to sea Mm. and hanging yourself, which Mm -hmm. is so evocative of like Kurt Cobain, you know what I mean? Which is like, which is... Kurt Cobain didn't hang himself. No, he did. But, you know, just like being, you know, he was in a, wasn't a garage, but it was something, guest house. I mean, it's not that the two incidents, they kind of rhyme a little bit to me anyway. Mm. But just being carried out to sea, I mean, that's about as... uh, as graceful as it gets but um, we had other good uh, emails about about the, a star is born and the other side of the wind and other things like that but uh, we'll s- save some of those for later we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations so we can feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion to reach us you can leave a short voicemail at 773 234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net net. that's it for this episode of the next picture show in part two we'll fast forward to present day chicago to look at another big heist in steve mcqueen's new thriller widows look for that tuesday or better yet subscribe to the next picture show on apple Podcasts, spotify or your podcatcher of choice find us at nextpictureshow.net follow us at facebook.com slash next picture show and follow us on twitter at next picture pod so you'll always know when a new episode drops Until then, we're going to change cars like other podcasters change their shoes.